Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Flow Line. It's a beautiful day here in Houston. It's almost 103 degrees. I don't think it's quite there, but we had a little cool front last week, didn't we, Matt? We sure did. And we got rain. Oh, that was actually really nice. I went home early to go running in the rain. <laughs> no joke. Really? Uh, it was amazing. Okay. So by saying that, I'm assuming you don't mind having your socks wet. No. Okay. And so here's the thing. Our coach in high school was the most amazing about like keeping people motivated and that sort of thing. And he's like, look, you're going to have a race where it's muddy mm. and like all that. But like, you know, I ran cross country. He's like, cross country is such a mental sport. When you hear somebody complaining about that, you've got them, yeah. right? Like they're exposing their weakness. You're going to go crush okay. them on the course. Mm. And so there, it was almost like, no, you want it to be muddy. You want it to be hot. Yeah. Like this other person is going to hurt. And now you have an advantage because you're going to yeah. overcome it. And it was like, so yeah. I still have that program in my brain where it's like, let's go running. It's raining. Yeah. Know? No, the, like the level of grit and like mental fortitude for that is super cool. And that's such a, a game like you're competing against others and a lot of it is probably mental just like most sports yeah huh fascinating i like that so how far did you run in the rain a little over four miles i mean the great thing was i smoked it too you know like wow it's been pretty rough because i only run outside and it's so brutally hot like i went sunday afternoon and it went far less well (laughs) (laughs) was it because it was not pouring rain it was very hot and there wasn't a lot of shade on where i went but i go running on buffalo bayou but there's like, even that is like the, okay, you're defeating the heat, mm-hmm. you know, although I was like seeing spots by the time I got home, which don't do that people. <laughs> oh. But anyways. It hurts. Yeah. So weather shifting, it's hot again, mm-hmm. but I enjoyed our little laps and maybe we'll get another one sometime before yeah. October. Right. No kidding. How's your lawn faring? It's doing pretty well, actually. The main reason is I took a lot of it out. <laughs> um, I put in some big flower beds and okay. got a little... We put in a big paver patio and we live on a corner lot. So we put driveway into the backyard. So we, oh yeah. So now the wife can take the kids, close the gate Mm. and now they can wander without wandering into a very busy street. (laughs) Yeah. Importante. Paver patio. We got a kiddie pool set up. Oh yeah. You got it made. Yeah. That's awesome. It's quite the lifestyle we get to live. Right. No kidding. No, living in the city is super cool. We actually went to a place this weekend called, it was in West U. It was a cookie shop called Milk and Cookies, I think, or anyway, it was a really neat spot and we drove around and just some of the the houses in that area. I mean, there's obviously a lot of really nice spots in Houston, but I'd never driven in that particular area, which is really nice. And so, of course, we started talking about, oh, it'd be cool. And we started looking on Zillow, to which then we realized we're not quite there yet. Yeah. And it's a gorgeous area, but a lot of people feel the same way. That, <laughs> and a lot of people who are very well off feel the same way. So. Yeah. No, but it has a, some interesting history in as much as a lot of places in Houston. But nonetheless, it was cool. Last thing before we talk about drilling fluids, Matt, you had actually someone engage with you on LinkedIn yeah. about an episode we'd recently done on the lime and the oil-based mud relationship. And I'll let you talk about it because I think it was a good question. And uh, again, we love the engagement. Yes. So we avoid naming names just uh, like, and the other part is 
I don't know why all you guys only want to reach out to Justin, so I felt really special that this one went to me. <laughs> yeah. but Because um, he's probably on a certain IQ level, and you realize if he was to get an answer, he needed to go to you. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. But I actually had to do a little bit of homework and like double check this with Andrew, but the nature of his question was a really good one. So okay. he said, look, if you've got 25% by weight calcium chloride in there, you've got a ton of calcium. So why do you need to add lime if there's all this calcium available mm, for your emulsifier? And it was like, I think I know the answer, but I need to double check this. There's a couple of great things about lime. Well, one, the soap, the calcium soap you're making is actually oil soluble. Okay. So it's in the oil phase, which means that calcium in the internal phase, it may not even actually see because it's already in solution. The other thing is, and this gentleman pointed out as well, lime isn't very soluble in water. You know, it takes a while to get into solution which is great for our purposes because that calcium is in the oil phase. It's not going straight into the internal phase and not being available for the free fatty acids to pick it up. Ah. So that is why your calcium chloride internal phase, that calcium doesn't necessarily impact your calcium for your free fatty acids to react for your emulsifier. Huh. That's, again, a good question and one that, like, it seems like an obvious question. I know I think I asked about the calcium carbonate, but... Thinking of the product that we add every day, calcium chloride. Yeah, it's a great question and it makes sense, right? It's not overly complicated, but it does make you kind of scratch your head. Yeah, and it was one of those like, why didn't we think of it when we were talking about it? But I'm yeah. I'm glad I didn't because I wouldn't have been very confident in my answer. And this gave me a chance to go back and double check. Very cool. Um, so thank you so much for the question. I thought it was great engagement. Yeah, no, again, I mean, that's at the end of the day, that's the whole reason behind what we do is to educate folks on drilling fluids. Because surely I don't know all the answers. You know most, not all, clearly. But I look them up before we get behind the microphone. So it sounds like I know more. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But again, it's just an opportunity to learn and even internally here for ourselves as we're talking on the podcast. So again, to the person who reached out to Matt, a big thank you for that. Before we talk about cuttings transport factors today, because I think that is an interesting topic. It touches on hole cleaning. I do have to ask you, because you always have a good constructive criticism on things. So I was curious, what do you think about threads Meta's combat to Twitter, because I know you're a Twitter guy. So Mm -hmm. I'm curious, what's your take on this whole thing? I'm torn. There's an aspect of this that I really like in as much as like, you know, some of these people like, I don't like Elon Musk and I want somewhere else to go. And they've tried these other platforms and some of them are political and some of them are whatever. Right. But I know they've tried to position themselves as a more positive place. And I really like that. I also don't necessarily know if that's like kind of the nature of the way we are. Like that's why the internet comment section is so nasty. (laughs) So I'm not really sure how you keep it a positive place. Without censoring people. Yeah. And that's the thing is some people have said, yeah, I feel like I've been restricted or or whatever. And so if it can stay a positive place, I think that would be a fantastic outlet. I just also think that like, I don't know, unless Elon Musk decides to like shut it down or whatever, (laughs) there's an aspect of Twitter where it's already established. It has a specific way that it makes it useful to us. Yeah. And so I'm going to stick to it. But if a bunch of people jump over to the old threads... I might be there. And I know you pointed out on a LinkedIn post, you know, if you're new to social media, this is maybe something to play with to like, yeah. you know, dip your toes into social media engagement. Yeah. To me, it's just like initially I was like, oh gosh, another platform that we have to dabble in. And again, no one has to do anything, but yeah, you know, I've played around with it. And for those who aren't really on social media or Twitter, you're probably wondering like, why are we even talking about it? But for the purpose of, I don't know if Matt maybe turned me on to Twitter, but getting onto Twitter has allowed me to have almost... It's like my feed for real-time oil and gas 
yes. news. And for me, that's very valuable and more so because I'm interested in the subject. But, you know, when Threads came out, I was like, oh, interesting. Like, I wonder if any of the, like the Josh Youngs and the people who really do a great job of like updating Twitter on like real time oil and gas news, if that's going to translate into or over. And it's like every platform, I think, evolves over time and morphs depending on the consumer behavior and whatever else, because the consumers drive it. But anyway, I was just curious about that. And time will tell. But it's funny because even over the course of a few days, at first, I was like, hey, I'm here. Like, oh, this is great. And then there was someone who has quite a large following started posting and you could tell that the trolls started coming on in. Yeah. And so it's already becoming, I could see like little spots of people like, are we going there? Like, are you just doing this to stir this pot up? And it's like, oh man. But yeah, man, well, it's like people can't help themselves. Yeah. Like, I don't know how many outlets I need for like really sarcastic comments about Astros games or, <laughs> you know, whatever. And although I have started, I don't really, I just sort of monitor it. I don't really like post much or anything. Yeah. But I have started replying to a few of the pretty good, like, snarky things that okay. are going on with the Astros. And especially, like, if somebody puts a good GIF up or something, and I'm <laughs> like, I'll be like, I came for this. Thank you and good day or something. <laughs> yeah. I affirm others right. you know, to make it a positive place. No, that's great. Well, uh, we'll see how it goes. And, yeah, who knows? It may get shut down, but it's gained quite a bit of momentum. But anyway, just thought I'd bring that up. And if anyone's out there, check it out. Let us know what you think. On the mud side, let's get back to it, Matt. So... This is something that, again, I was scratching my head trying to think of different topics. We've covered so many, but I think at the end of the day, whole cleaning for us is so critical and whole cleaning can mean a lot of different things, right? And so I feel like, well, if you break it down even further, cuttings transport is something that when you're talking about whole cleaning, it's not like a, one of those words that you throw in there. You kind of have to get dive into a little bit of the weeds and the mechanics of whole cleaning. So I was like, well, maybe people have heard of it, but aren't really familiar what exactly cuttings transport means. So I thought we could talk about that. Yeah. I mean, and it's interesting because it's like, oh, well, it's whole cleaning. It's like, well, okay. So whole cleaning is a system, right? And and you sometimes hear the whole cleaning system. Yeah. But by system, we mean the specific factors that go into actually lifting a cutting away from the rock face and up out of the well where yeah. we want it. I think this is a pretty good breakdown. And if you think about it, there are actually a number of factors and they all relate to one another. Right. So you've kind of got to balance out your well conditions for which ones you prioritize. Perfect. Well, then why don't we go ahead and start with the factors that actually go into moving the cuttings or transporting the cuttings. The first one, I think if anyone was to guess, it'd be like, well, the most obvious would be rheology, but more specifically like the viscosity of the fluid. So let's talk about viscosity. Yeah. So this is sort of, it's more than one thing. So in some ways you say, look, for transportation, what thicker is better, right? That carries the fluid. To some degree, yes. And we'll get into some of these other factors, but if I don't have that large of cuttings or I'm not drilling as fast, maybe when I turn the pumps off, it's less risky that I'm going to actually pack off or something. And in fact, if I make the fluid too thick, I can't pump as fast and therefore I don't have turbulence, which provides energy to move cuttings. In some cases, when I don't have enough pump capability, I might actually find the balance of running a thicker fluid. But the flip side of that is we published a paper a few years ago that Mr. Justin Parsons presented. And it was about a customer who was drilling 4,000 foot laterals way back in the early days. Fluid's kind of thick because they're worried it hadn't done a lot of horizontals. And then they say, okay, well, we actually can do this. So they thin the fluid down. All of a sudden, whole cleaning issues went away because they were able to convey cuttings through turbulence. But then they started drilling further out. And they said, oh my gosh, get the fluid thick. Make sure we can carry these cuttings out. Like we haven't drilled these long laterals. All those issues came back. Thin the fluid back down. Oh, it's moving again. 
So, yes, there is an important aspect of suspension where viscosity makes a lot of sense. Obviously, we use viscosifiers all the time to suspend weight material to do other things. And so thick does matter, but the whole like thicker is better is not always the case. Sometimes it can be too thick. Right. Another thing when we talk about cuttings transport is the PV, you know, we talk about plastic viscosity, we're talking about pump pressure. So we want that as low as possible, ALAP, every program. (laughs) And then we talk about yield point, which as you've heard us talk about rheological models and everything, you know, the yield point is basically the zero interceptor. If, If there's no shear, how thick is the fluid? But we also know that the slope of that line where the yield point is, that's actually fairly, or not the slope, but the zero intercept, that's actually a pretty high number. And so a lot of times we use what's called the low shear yield point. So two times their three RPM rating minus your six, your tau zero, if you have the spreadsheet and solver function to address it, there's that element versus the high shear, the PV, the very high shear readings that affect my pump pressures. But from a transport perspective, those things don't matter as much as low shear rate viscosity for static suspension, Mm. obviously lower shear rate. But then again, what about all that energy I want to apply if I can give it turbulence? So viscosity is, it's not just one thing, right? Yeah. From factors to consider. And hopefully I haven't confused everybody thoroughly, (laughs) but understand there's a balance there. That's where hydraulic modeling can be very helpful in a well. Yeah. Again, it can be a lot to chew on in most, a lot of folks, including myself up until a certain point in my mud career, viscosity was simply just what you measure through the funnel vis, right? But there's so much that goes into it, which you learn a lot of it in mud school and whether you're actually, you know, there mentally or not, depending on how early in the morning it is after a long night, you may have forgotten some of that stuff. So no, I think, you know, again, you did a great job describing that and some of the things that go into it. I would imagine too, is when we're talking about this, when you were talking about like the thinner fluid, talking about as we were extending out into different lateral lengths, when you get into just like back in the day, or even now, if you're drilling a vertical well, thinner isn't necessarily always better either, though. Like sometimes in a right. vertical well, some of these concepts are flipped around, right? Yeah. So that's a great point. So you're pumping downward. So the cuttings are trying to go up, right? And they're falling downwards due to gravity. And so you pump upwards and they're falling downwards. And in many ways, if you can slow that drop headed straight down your well, thicker can be a good thing, right? especially if you're mudded up and it's a full system so on and so forth, because otherwise it's just headed south. So that's definitely something worth considering. And, you know, you're sort of teasing it, but we'll ultimately get into what, how well trajectory affects cuttings transport. Ah, that is true. We do have that part of it. Okay, well, then let's move on to the second big rock here is mud weight or the fluid density. That's a big one too, you know. I would imagine the old weighted sweeps, that was – Again, some, and we've talked about this before, is now with the rig power, a lot of these things have sort of the philosophy behind these things have changed over time. But Matt, describe mud weight and how that's a factor in cuttings transport. Yeah, so your cuttings, the specific gravity, you know, they work out to a mud weight of 21 point something pounds per gallon, probably. And so they're quite heavy relative to probably your circulating mud weight. But the closer you get, the less differential in density between your drilling fluid and the material that's the cuttings that are in it. And so it becomes noticeably different as you get heavier. You know, when you get into the 15, 16 pound range, cuttings transport just doesn't seem to be the same issue as it does in nine pound mud. And, you know, I've been on some heavy wells where at 18, 19 pounds per gallon, and you're pretty darn close to what the cuttings weigh anyways. You know, the other fun fact is you're probably going to drill pretty slow because of other factors. But yeah, so the delta between the density of your cuttings and the density of your circulating fluid 
that can be a factor in cuttings transport. Mm-hmm. Buoyancy, as they call it. Right, right. Okay, so then we've moved on to that. So again, the other major one is flow rate, which that has our ability to pump at higher rates has changed over time. So this is an interesting conversation too. But but again, Matt, flow rate, how is that a factor in cuttings transport? Well, if you think about what it takes to transport a cutting, it's energy, right? And the energy we apply into that system is through our pumps. And the amount of energy in any given area is, is more or less going to be expressed at how fast the fluid's moving. And so if you have a higher annular velocity, there's more energy to move that cutting. So this plays out in a few different ways. And as much as you mentioned, we get bigger pumps, we drill longer wells with no problems that maybe before we had to play with the viscosity and do some other things. And I think it's the same reason that we pump those stupid weighted sweeps that I hate so much. <laughs> Refer to episode why Matt hates sweeps. But um, Have we done one? Yeah, we, we did, did the why Matt hates hate sweeps. Yeah, okay, yeah. I know we did a series. I did. Addie wants me to hate other things. I need to work on more anger. <laughs> okay. She said we need an episode. All right. You know, think about the things that deprive you of this annular velocity. So I'm going to put one out there that I thought is a really interesting story. So the tool joints are bigger, right? And so you have these intermittent sections where you have higher angular velocity that kind of helps kick up beds and make things move. So there's drill pipe that's 45 foot joints for like these quad mega rigs. The idea that they could hold four conventional joints in a stand. And you think about it, well, I'm reducing the number of connections I have to make for a 40,000 foot well. This is awesome, right? Well, what was observed is, at least these were the early Sockland wells and you can read the publication, but they set up the whole pipe bar and everything to handle these 45 foot joints. And they noticed they were having hole cleaning issues. And they looked into it again and noticed that the reason was because of the larger gap between the tool joints Mm. wasn't giving them that like kicked up annular velocity at a regular enough interval. And so they actually welded sleeves halfway down the pipe just to mimic another tool joint. Because the pipe barn, they couldn't just swap out pipe because pipe barn and everything was all set up, you know, custom for all this. So that's what they did. Fun story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, so annular velocity. And this is another thing, you know, sometimes I'll say some things and people will be like, no, no, that's not true. And in my head, it's that we're missing some details when we describe it. So one of the hardest things to do is drill like a 17 and a half inch hole on a rig that's somewhat limited because it's such a huge hole size relative to the pipe, you have relatively low annular velocity. And if you have to kick off or do anything, that can be a fairly difficult challenge for your rig pumps because you're limited annular velocity and you can't pump any harder than probably what a lot of rigs are capable of. And I'm like, yeah, you can do this all day long, but I'm thinking like the eight and a half or six and three quarter inch you know, production section where your annular velocities are so high, like you're cleaning the hole, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And when we have conversations with customers, I don't know if you remember, but when we did the podcast with Fred Dupriest, there was a comment he made where he's like, he's like, if you're pumping at 600 GPMs in this, he's like, hole cleaning is the least of your worries. Like, Mm -hmm. he's like, I don't know what ROP would keep you from being able to drill this well if you're circulating that fast. Yeah. And it was one of those where it's like, okay, well, if you don't believe me or the hydraulic models, Here's an excerpt from Fred. <laughs> right. You know? Yeah, no kidding. And I guess just jumping into that, thinking about when flow rates might change, even though you're pumping at a different rate. So let's say you drill into a cavern or you have wellbore instability. That's the worst because you've got these cavings you're trying to get out of there. And where those cavings are is where the fluid is slowing down, even though the rest of your annular velocity is consistent. And then losses. So maybe I'm losing by the shoe. Maybe I'm losing lower down. But if I only have... 50% returns, it means 
part of my well, I only have 50% of my flow rate. So you may have to slow down drilling, not just hopefully to reduce the circulating pressures to limit how much mud you lose, but also because cuttings transportation is affected. Mm. So flow rate, annual velocity, I think depending on how big your annulus is, that can ultimately change your annual velocity. Therefore, your flow rate in those types of caverns can affect hole cleaning. No bueno. Yeah. Was there anything else on that or do we need to move on to the next factor? I think we should move on to the next factor. Okay. You covered it well. You covered it well. So moving on, pipe rotation. That was a big one, or at least from my experience, when K&M started coming out and talking about a lot of that kind of stuff, pipe rotation became hugely important. Talk about pipe rotation. Well, kind of going back to some degree with flow regime, you know, one, yes, if you're rotating a whole bunch, one thing you're doing is you're continually altering the flow regime. Okay. So if the pipe is constantly moving around the wellbore, there's no one section that for, you know, it's less than a second that cuttings have a chance to settle and accumulate because you're giving it a blast of turbulent flow. Instead of your pipe, think of it being more like a corkscrew, right? I mean, the sort of helical rotation, because you know that the energy you apply to it is not uniform where all of the pipe is on the top of the hole and all the pipes on the bottom. It's sort of slinging around down there, right? Mm. But what it means is you're creating this sort of helical flow around the pipe as it moves, but it's constantly changing. So I'm continually in the low spots that we're getting low flow. Now they're getting high flow. And that's part of the challenge, you know, without getting too far ahead of myself, you know, on well trajectory, we're rotating the pipe. It's much harder in a build section where the pipe is already kind of partially suspended to get it to want to move around like that, along with all the other factors. And one thing I think we got aggressive with pipe rotation is people be like, well, I'm rotating the pipe. And what you're doing is you're rotating it about its axis. So it was rotating, but it was sitting at the bottom of the well. Right. And what we've been going for, we say, no, you need to rotate much faster than that, is I want it whipping around or orbiting, you know, actually orbiting around the well bore so that I'm continually shifting those flow regimes so that my annular velocity keeps, I keep getting that good strong surge as I go. Yes. And there's an element of this where, you know, people say, look, if you do the modeling, your ECD goes up if you rotate your pipe. And yes, that is true. But your ECD goes up even more if you don't get cuttings out of the hole. So there's your balance, right? Is you want to get that pipe really good movement to transport cuttings. Yeah. But understand that like, yeah, think about it. If you turned up a mixer, let's say we could, and we can't, but if you could rotate at like 2000 RPMs, that might be like, well, that'll really clean a hole. Yeah. But think about how much pressure that's going to apply on all that fluid. Much higher ECD. Yeah. So we don't do that. Okay. And we can't. So. Right. <laughs> but on the extreme case, it, yeah. it proves a good point. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, another factor here is cutting size, depending what you're cutting, your ROP, where you are in the wellbore. I mean, yeah. your cutting size will vary yeah. pretty considerably from spud to all the way to TD if you're out 20, even 30,000 feet. Yeah. Yeah. And I think bit design, once again, we need to get more people with bits to kind of talk to us. I think some of these bits have been designed more to break up cuttings or, you know, I think some of it's up to the rock, but smaller chips obviously are much easier to transport than big ones. Mm-hmm. You know, this is why going back to the like caving scenario, they're big. So they're really hard to get out of the hole, which means you probably have to sort of break them up as they're coming out or they might not flow. Right. Think about this. What about if I'm drilling in a like really reactive clay? Guess what? Cuttings are going to swell. Now it got bigger because it interacted with water, you know, reactive clay interacts with water, it gets bigger. Now it doesn't want to move. And then maybe it even wants to stick. So those sizes and then, you know, the specific gravity, we sort of tease that out. Most of our cuttings are between what, two, three something and two, seven, two, eight, if you're in pure carbonate. 
So there's not a huge swing there, but if you were drilling into lead, it would be much more difficult to clean and drill. Yeah. So the specific gravity of the cuttings is part of the calculation, I guess. This is the best way to describe it. Okay, perfect. Something I started teasing earlier is well trajectory. You know, we've got your vertical. Sometimes you're in a deviated well. You've got step out, obviously horizontal. How does well trajectory play into cuttings transport? Well, I think the biggest thing I try and remind folks is that we talk about like a vertical hole. It may be a vertical hole, but a lot of your holes are vertical. They just also have a built section and a horizontal section too. And guess what? The cuttings behavior, the transport behavior is going to be a little different in each one. And so, you know, there's great hole cleaning videos out there showing kind of the dune flow effect in horizontal. And what that is, is cuttings leave the bit and let's say they start to try and build a little pile. Well, the more they build, guess what? Your annual velocity in that specific location go, you know, increases. And so it sort of knocks over that bed. So it looks sort of like a wave or a sand dune kind of spilling over on itself. And then it's, it starts to build up again and then it does it and it works its way all the way up to the build section. Right. And then in the build section, we've got that area where one, the bottom of my well, like I can avalanche because I've got that slope and it's going to be a little bit harder because you're not going to have that dune build up on the top of the hole anymore. And your fastest motion is at the top of the hole. So everything sort of wants to fall down to the sloped area and then plummet, which hopefully we can address with turbulence and good pipe rotation, that sort of thing. And then we get in the vertical and thankfully the vertical is pretty forgiving if we can get through all that in as much as if we're pumping enough against the downward forces, we can continue to go up. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So with well trajectory, I mean, would you say over time we've like cuttings transport and our approach to hole cleaning has changed with well trajectory? Like obviously back in the day it was only verticals. Yeah. So is there as much emphasis on trying to figure out the relationship with, of say cutting transport and horizontal, or do you think that we've gotten to a point where like we've maximized cutting transport with our capabilities of higher pumps? And I think we've gotten really comfortable with the horizontal, but I think it was because everybody was scared of it and it turned out to be more forgiving Mm. than the build section. Gotcha. In unconventionals, our build sections are extremely short. These risks are much lower. But let's say you're offshore drilling from a platform and guess what? If you're going to spend a billion dollars on a platform and you got to drill a bunch of wells to justify the cost, you're going to put it in the middle of the field, not closest to some wells and further away from others. So you're always stepping out at 60, 70 degrees, sometimes for three, 6,000 feet, sometimes more in like 12 and a quarter hole. Like it can be big stuff. And those are still challenging. Thankfully, if you're offshore, you know, you've, normally someone will fork over some money for the pumps. The formation will allow for it. But I think our biggest problem when we talk about hole cleaning is understanding the nuances and the well types. You know, I remember somebody, you've heard the rules of thumb, like, hey, have your yield point be the same as your hole diameter. Like, that's a good rule of thumb. And I think in a particular time when you didn't have great pumps and that sort of thing, or it was like one to one and a half times, whatever it was. But that might've been a decent rule of thumb in vertical wells way back, you know, all of those other factors. But now the conversation is so much about the pumps that viscosity kind of circling back to the beginning, viscosity can help or hurt you. So when you're like, what's the perfect rheology? It's one of those, how fast are you pumping? How much are you rotating your pipe? And like somebody just wants, just give me a box I can fill out. Yeah. It's like, no, we actually have to look at the whole cleaning system, right. you know, kind of going back. And those conversations are still relevant if we're just talking about the vertical, but maybe not if we're drilling a four-mile lateral. Yep. No, it's 
great things to think about. How's ROP, Matt? How does that affect everything? Well, some of this has to do with how many cuttings you've got to get out of the hole at a given time. And we like to drill fast. And so if we can let go of the brake and drill as fast as we can, we have to make sure that we have the energy to get all of those out before they sort of get into our way. And so those big hole sizes, some of those other scenarios, you may actually have to control your ROP relative to your ability to circulate and viscosity and all those other things to get all these cuttings out without risking a pack off because they're getting trapped somewhere. Yeah. But it is interesting. So, I mean, you worked up in the Northeast. It's like Marcellus cuttings. They're like coffee grounds. Utica is probably even worse, but they're very, very tiny. What do you see? You see every three months, somebody's drilled 10,000 feet in a day or whatever. And the fact is like, that's a pretty easy hole to clean with the rigs they've got. You're drilling effectively into a snowbank. The cuttings are very small. You know, solids are the fight, actually. It's great that these cuttings are small, but they also don't want to come out on a conventional shaker screen. So anyways, ROP matters because if you want to drill really fast, you got to have the energy to get them out of the hole and you might not sometimes and you can out drill yourself. Yeah. No, I mean, it's interesting when you look at hydraulic studies and we did one for a customer that in an area traditionally it was just take your foot off the brake, pedal to the metal drill as fast as you can. Well, there was times where they couldn't figure out why we'd lose in some areas and we wouldn't in others. And through a bunch of modeling and rock analysis, we figured out anyone out there is going to laugh. And they realized that by actually reducing ROP resulted in a gain of overall well performance and efficiency because we weren't blowing out the bottom. We weren't having to spend time cleaning, trying to heal the losses. We had to pre-treat way less, Mm. but it was, we helped them create a roadmap along with other vendors to figure out a way of maximizing ROP without there being like almost some diminishing returns on further increasing ROP. So it was interesting to look at the data and say, okay, well, you can out-drill yourself and going too fast can often result in some other, there's a trade-off there. So finding the right balance is obviously important, but some operators would say, I don't care. (laughs) So Yeah, I mean, it's interesting when you get the chance to say, let's look at all these parameters holistically. Mm -hmm. Because it's like, yes, you can drill really fast, but the formation can't hold it. Do you want to spend time fixing problems? Or if we avoid this problem, do we save a bunch of time? Yeah. That's where the engineering gets really interesting. You find that sweet spot. Yeah. Yeah, so, exactly. That's cool. Yeah, it's an example there. You know, again, I think those are all the cutting transport factors I can think of, Matt. I mean, again, it's when you look at everything, like you said, holistically, it's coming up with looking at everything without putting too much weight on one versus the other, that you need to have them all working in sync <laughs> to maximize your holding. But at the end of the day, too, there's a lot of forgiveness in a well, depending on the type of well, depending on what kind of formation you're drilling. So do all these have to be like working at 100% efficiency? Not necessarily, but you strive to hopefully get there. Yeah, well, you know, what's a clean hole? And it's like the dirtiest hole that you can do all your operations with, right? Like <laughs> yeah. if I don't get all my cuttings out of the hole, but I can drill as fast as I want, I can trip on elevators and I can run casing, bounce it off bottom, who cares? It's good enough, but we don't need to be perfect. Yeah, that's a very good point. What what did you say? That that was a cool term. I never heard that. I was saying you said the cleanest hole is the dirtiest hole you can do your operations. Yeah. In. Yeah. No, that's a good one. Maybe the name of the episode. Who knows? But anyway, all the questions I had, Matt, anything else? Any thoughts? Closing last words? No, I hope we covered it. Let's see. If anybody did. has any other thoughts or anything to add, by all means, it's interesting when you get into like managed pressure drilling and some of these other things where it gets a little complicated or 
drilling in deep water with a riser where you have a booster pump because you know you can't get that velocity. So yeah. there's other things that you can do here and do some real engineering, but understanding how these parameters are in a relationship, is, as you stated, will help you get those cuttings transported where they want to go, which is away from the well. <laughs> get them out. Awesome. Well, folks, thanks again for listening. If you have any thoughts or if you want to add a question to the conversation, again, it's, you know, as we did at the beginning there, we helped answer a question. We love the engagement. So again, thank you for that. And if anyone else out there has any questions or thoughts regarding any topics or ones maybe we haven't covered yet, we've covered quite a few, but there's got to be something out there. People are scratching their heads on with regards to drilling fluids. Or if you have an idea for a guest too, you never know. I have one, uh, I was going to, I wrote it down as we were running. I'm going to run it by you, Matt. I'm pretty sure I'll be open to it, but hunting that person down might be tough. But regardless, we do want to do some interviews. Hopefully we've got some internal ones coming up here. There's some folks that have been around AES for a long time that I'm, I would love to get on, but oftentimes people will share the mic, but we're going to do that. And uh, again, share the episode, review it if you can, follow us on LinkedIn, connect with Matt and I on LinkedIn. We're always loving the engagement. If you'd rather just go old school and send us an email, you can reach us at the flowline podcast at AESfluids.com. And with that being said, thanks everyone. Stay cool and take care for now. Take care. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of The Flow Line. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.